Welcome back to the Dissolve Podcast, episode 38, Walking Away from an Explosion Edition. I'm your host, Tosh Robinson, Senior Editor at the Dissolve. This week, questions over a new documentary have us thinking about the fine line between skepticism and cynicism, how they help us select movies, and when they just get in our way. The revival of a trope that we've come to hate prompted us to talk a bit about some of our favorite tropes and the ones that never work for us. Jurassic World hitting theaters gives us a reason to look back on a century of films featuring dinosaurs in this week's game, I'm Dinosaurie. And as always, we'll close with our competitive recommendation segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned. When Crystal Moselle's documentary The Wolf Pack debuted at Sundance, it played to wide acclaim and won the Grand Jury Award in the documentary category. When the trailer for the film hit the net, however, the reaction was much more mixed. Check out the comments on virtually any site where the trailer appears, and you'll find at least one person decrying the film as an obvious fraud based on its premise. The argument runs that if the family Moselle profiles in the film were really as sheltered and isolated as the film claims, she couldn't possibly have met them at all. There's something to be said for skepticism, especially in an era when so many documentaries are agitprop with a specific agenda, and so many based-on-reality films have nothing to do with reality. But is the growing tide of internet-based cynicism healthy or helpful? Where do we draw the line in deciding how important strict accuracy has to do with art? Here to find the line between skepticism and cynicism are... Keith Phipps. And... Scott Tobias. All right, Scott, am I wrong in feeling that we've hit a new level of skepticism coming from people who've grown up uh, decrying everything they see online as as shopped or faked? Mm -hmm. Or is this just one of those journalist notices something, then it becomes news kind of things? I think we've hit a new level, for sure. Um, uh, I don't think it's entirely unhealthy. I mean, what you're saying about people just dismissing uh, the wolf pack as a fraud, I mean, I think that is definitely pushing it way too far, which is something uh, I guess we can get into. But I think it's really an entirely healthy development for us to have some skepticism about the things that we see. You know, documentaries have been deceptive from the very beginning. I mean, Nanak of the North is not some perfectly objective anthropological document. It has plenty of staged footage and is really a collaboration between the filmmaker uh, Robert Flaherty and his subject. Uh, it's not a scientific study. Um, the camera is present. Uh, the, the subject is aware of the camera. Um, and movies like, you know, Catfish, for example, or, or, you know, or the skepticism that greets you know, a Michael Moore film, it makes viewers aware of the machinations of nonfiction filmmaking, and I think that helps us understand them better. I mean, it's, I think it's a healthy dialogue so long as it's, as it's a dialogue, so long as it doesn't just shut down you know, uh, f- films entirely. Uh, that, 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 that's when it becomes unhealthy to me, when you're just like, I, I don't accept this film at all. This film is a fraud. And then you just, you move on. I think, I think you just have to wrestle with, the, the, wrestle with uh, you know, some things that are true, some things that are untrue, some things that are, that are some, somewhere in between. It's so, and that's, that, that's a good thing. I think it also creates uh, a need for documentary filmmakers to have an airtight case mm-hmm. and to back up. I mean, I think, I think there's a great, creates a greater need for, for, with all the scrutiny going on, a greater need for, for scrupulousness. And, 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 uh, and I think that's not necessarily as overstated as some of the skepticism can be. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it just seems to me, I understand the reaction to Catfish. I didn't have nearly as visceral a response to watching it as some people did in terms of thinking the filmmakers are being disingenuous. They're they're creating a situation 
uh, and pretending that they don't understand what the situation is to build drama. I can see where that comes from. But that is a cynical reaction to actually watching the film. What I don't understand about the Wolfpack reaction is that, first of all, it's coming in some cases from some people who I know are intelligent and rigorous about watching film and who have pre-rejected the movie. Uh, and second of all, the, the questions are answered within the film itself. I mean, to me, watching the trailer for that film and dismissing it as, you know, it, it must be a fraud based on the premise is like watching a trailer for Jaws and saying, you know, these people are in the middle of a town. A shark can't get them there. This movie is obviously dumb. I'm not going to watch it. Are you telling me that people should actually see a movie before judging it? Isn't that amazing? Is this a, is this a radical breakthrough we're making in this podcast? But here's the thing. I mean, I, I do think that a certain level of skepticism helps us winnow out what to see and what not to see. And everybody has to set that bar differently for themselves. The question I sort of wanted to get at here is, I mean, for us, it, it's kind of a different thing because we, we don't always have the liberty of saying, eh, that looks terrible or manipulated or whatever. I'm just not going to see it. We often have to see things for work or are curious about things for work-related reasons. Um, but for a lot of people, I think that, ugh, that, God, that looks fake reaction is just sort of helping them process the immense amount of choices out there and, and helping them pick things. I mean, I, I think if you, if, if, you know, people have, we have a choice to see what they want to see. I mean, I, my work, my, I just don't, I don't like opinions of things uh, existing uh, without finish that sentence existing at all. But no, but opinion. I, I just don't like it when people have have opinions about things they haven't seen. Uh, mm -hmm. Because uh, you know, a trailer can suggest certain things. You know, some piece of writing you've read about something can suggest something. But you really have to kind of see the see the thing itself in order to have an informed opinion on it. Um, that uh, being said, should we maybe talk about some of the things that are causing this? I mean, you touched on all the agitprop documentaries that are there around that make sort of a, a convincing that make that make a case for one side of an argument without really investigating the other. I think that that could be one cause of it. I mean, we, we kind of talk about we have a running joke. Is joke the right word in the office about how it does it should this if a documentary ends in a URL for a cause, then maybe it's uh, maybe it'll be better off not being made or or or, uh, you know, we don't necessarily want to sit through any more of those. But uh, you think a, a fatigue about that could be part of the problem? Uh, maybe, but I also I th also think like just being being aware of what a film is doing uh, is is always is good. I mean, again, you just have to be there for it. <laughs> you know, I, I if, if you watch uh, one of these agitprop films, I mean, I think you, if you're aware of the ways in which film is being used to to manipulate your emotions, uh, and uh, you can be and you're aware of certain techniques uh, that are that are cheap. Uh, you know, then I think that's 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 good critical thinking, uh, and I think that's a that's a very healthy thing. I just don't. But what you're talking about with regard to the wolf pack, I mean, I don't, I don't. Uh, you know, you have to see it. I just, I don't know. Other, I don't know any other way to put it. I just, you have to see the film in order to, uh, in order to start to come come to the, those conclusions about it. Or really, just do like the slightest bit of investigation about it. I mean, the answer to that, to the question of how she met these people who were isolated, is very readily findable on the net. And that's the other thing is where I tend to dislike knee jerk cynicism, and I'm an inveterate cynic, but. I can see it getting in the way at the point where you don't actually bother to to take the next step to to 
answer your own question to do the research. But we focused a lot on documentaries here. What about other genres? Uh, I mean, I've gotten very cynical about biopics because, and, and pretty much anything using the phrase based on a true story, because those films inevitably seem to have very little relationship with the true story. And for me, the cynicism there comes from feeling that I'm being marketed to, that I'm being, uh, like, there's an attempt at manipulating me by trying to press a reaction with the based on a true story tag that is a reaction I know I'm not going to have. And it's not necessarily a cynicism about the film itself. It's a cynicism about how a film is being sold. So you get into that with biopics. And then, I mean, there are also ways to be cynical about what a fiction film is selling. Do you guys process that sort of skepticism differently? if it's in a, a completely different genre or a different type of film? Yeah, I mean, biopics almost seem like a whole different topic. Uh, I mean, there, there's always going to be compression and fictionalization. I, I, and, and, you know, the quality of a movie could, you know, you could have a really good movie that's, that's you know, in a way, total bullshit. I mean, Argo <laughs> is a movie I like, and it ends in complete, uh, a ridiculous fictionalization that nonetheless works for the movie, I guess. Um, but well, there's uh, that I guess in there, though. The, yeah. the fact that you, the fact that you sort of trail off into that, uh, I guess. Yeah, well, it's it's very effectively shot, and I was disappointed to find out uh, how uh, far from the truth it was after the fact. And I'm, you know, I guess I maybe I still haven't processed how that makes me feel about the movie because I haven't revisited it nor watched it again, but. Uh, um, but yeah, I guess Argo is a really good example there. Does any degree to which that is fictionalized change your feelings about it? Because I know um, finding out uh, how far from the fact it was made me think, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. I my skepticism kicked in at, during the airport scene. Like, well, see, I'm far when more I was gullible. actually watching it. I, I'm far more gullible. <laughs> I yeah. No, yeah. you're far less cynical, and I think it means you enjoy movies more than I do. I mean, we've, <laughs> we've had this conversation. I, I find it very difficult to watch a film without mentally predicting how it's going to end, um, which can get in the way of my enjoying how it's actually ending. And I find it very hard to not, in the middle of a based-on-reality story like that, kind of roll my eyes and go, all right, I, I know for a fact that this didn't happen. But for what it's worth, watching that film and enjoying that ending, which I did, but thinking at the same time, none of this is the truth, none of this is real, meant that I didn't have the come down later. Like when I read about what the real ending to that story was, I didn't go, oh, that changes the movie for me. I went, oh, yeah, okay, that's pretty much what I thought. That's interesting. I think it's a film equivalent of like Melancholia, where, where, you're, where the uh, depressed <laughs> people are just better equipped to deal with the, the crushing realities of existence. The cynical people are much better equipped to, to enjoy movies more, more in the long run. I mean, just to some degree at this point, whenever I go into a biopic or based on reality story, I think what I am going to see is not going to have any relationship to the truth. And not having that association leaves me a lot freer to enjoy the movie for what it is, as opposed to thinking that I'm learning something. <laughs> That's what I've had to get over with my cynicism is any sort of feeling that I'm going to come out of this movie knowing more about a person or a historical period or like how the Enigma machine was decoded or, or what have you. I've become a lot less, I, I want to say skeptical, but nitpicky about these sorts of things. I mean, we talked about it last year a little bit with Selma and, and American Sniper and their relationship to uh, the the historical record, what we know about uh, the subjects of those films. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just remember, I remember the, the first time this kind of happened to me. I, you know, when Roger and me came out and it was such a big deal. Um, you know, I remember really loving it in, in the theater and then reading some, some, um, 
pieces that, that kind of took it to task for, for scrambling the timeline and suggesting cause and effect relationships that didn't exist. And uh, I remember that being one of the first time I, times I really started to question what I was seeing uh, in, a, in a documentary. And, I, and there, are, there are certainly plenty of times, certainly with his films, uh, that, I, that I do get quite skeptical and I do feel manipulated and I do wonder, uh, you know, whether, whether there's a line being crossed, I guess. But, um, but at the same time, I mean, even if a film is grossly deceptive, you know, like, like Catfish, um, uh, you know, there are some things that we can learn from Catfish about identity and the sort of the distance between our true selves and the selves we put out into the world. I mean, there's, there are things that we can glean from that and we can still kind of engage with the film. I just, I, I just think kind of, you know, these sort of wholesale dismissals is uh, not really, you know, there's room for nuance. There's room to kind of play around in that gray area. I mean, that Herzog's, that Herzog term, ecstatic truth, I just, I love it. I feel like I just tend to embrace it because I feel like, um, you know, as, as a viewer, it's much more productive to kind of uh, understand that there's, there's a gray area both in fiction films and in documentary films. And, and it's okay to kind of, to kind of exist in that space and, and see how, and try to come to terms with how we might be manipulated and how, how the truth is being presented and, uh, and, and just deal with it that way without, without necessarily, you know, Dismissing, dis- embracing everything, embracing something without questioning it, or just completely dismissing it without thought. Well, I mean, I, I, there is something to be said for never just a wholesale dismissing something without seeing what it has to offer. But I mean, you've you've turned in a couple of zero star reviews lately. Mm. You you have encountered movies that you've wanted to dismiss wholesale. How does how does the cynicism skepticism divide work for you guys when it comes to something like I don't know 2012 the movie where you know going in like from the ads you know what you're getting you know what it's selling you know how it's trying to manipulate you you know how it's trying to buy into the zeitgeist to sell something that you know is going to be ridiculous how like how do you deal with that uh, i really do even with you know something like 2012 which i did not enjoy we come back to that movie a lot in this podcast oh, there's just something about 2012 that. segment it's but, the uh, over-the-top ridiculousness of it it sticks in the mind but i i don't know i really do despite you know not having a not enjoying Emmerich films in the past and being sort of turned off by the idea of it. I, I really do try to treat each movie as a blank slate. And once the screen, you know, once, the, once the lights go down, I think we're, you know, I try to just do a clean slate for everything. And then the movie has to win me over or, or, or lose, you know, it has, it has is equal opportunity to win me over or lose me at that point. I really do try to do it that way. And, and I, I think it's kind of a professional necessity. If you, if you go into something and, and uh, you know, dismissing it ahead of time or knowing you're going to see a masterpiece, you're going to run into trouble. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's always one of my, basic critical tenets is to, to is i think a film tells you what it's going what it's trying to trying to be and uh and it sets the sort of terms um and uh you you can then kind of evaluate it on the terms uh, for which it sets the, the 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 terms that it sets for itself that's what you're evaluating as a critic all right well take that cynics and skeptics <laughs> of all kinds enjoy all things on their own merits and save the cynicism until you've actually seen the movie and then come around and tell us how absolutely terrible it was, because we really do enjoy those uh, the cynical post-viewing uh, discussions quite a bit. Uh, thanks for talking, guys. I was a little skeptical about whether this would come off. Now I'm just feeling cynical about the whole thing, but <laughs> I, I enjoyed it while it was happening. <laughs> thanks, Tasha. Let's 
Last week, Genevieve and I both had similar experiences. In the theater seeing Mad Max Fury Road, we both caught the trailer for the new Vacation movie, which features someone getting abruptly creamed by a truck going by at physics-defying velocity, apparently oblivious to everything else on the road. It got us talking about some of our absolute least favorite movie tropes, the ones that make us roll our eyes and think, not this again, no matter how it's handled. But we all try to be positive here at The Dissolve, so it would be remiss if we didn't discuss some of our absolute favorite movie tropes as well. Here to give the thumbs up and thumbs down on some familiar old cliches are Rachel Handler, Scott Tobias, and Keith Phipps. All right, Rachel, we'll start with you. What's uh, it'll just name name a movie trope that you hate. What what do you what never works for you on screen? Um, I really hate when women walk around after having sex in a men's button down without pants on. <laughs> <laughs> like that doesn't happen. Really specific. <laughs> it's it's just really really bothers me. Oh gosh! I mean, we could we could practically do a whole segment yeah. on terrible sex tropes. Yes, I have a couple actually. I have I, another one. I, it, it, like if I don't want to, I don't want to steal your list because if your <laughs> list is like women wearing bras during sex, yeah, men getting up after sex and they still got their underwear on yes. for some reason, and like, no, also just falling asleep right after having sex, both of them just turning over and falling asleep. <laughs> Well, Wait, there's also there's also uh, uh, wearing the entire bed when you get out, <laughs> when you get out of bed. Yes. I am actually kind of fond of the L-shaped sheet, <laughs> the sheet where they're both lying in bed afterwards, and for some reason it comes up to the woman's neck and only up to the man's waist. Right. Like I, that kind of like it doesn't work for me. In a a movie should be based around that, but it makes me laugh as opposed to roll my eyes. If you can, okay. if you can kind of like read the contract negotiation that went on into in, <laughs> before the scene was 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 filmed, you know, at no point, et cetera, et cetera. You no, know. individual clavicles were negotiated for, but nothing <laughs> post clavicle level. I, I worried it was just my male gaze speaking, but the, yeah, the bra, the bra during sex thing, of course, is is very is is, is uh, concerning. It's very it's very American. The other thing, too, is like, the other thing, if we're just going to keep get, getting into the subject, is like just, you know, people just waking up and kissing, you know? It's like, it's you have horrible breath, like, just brush your teeth, like, yeah. just, it's not, just, come on now. Right. You're oh, not, my God. You're not doing this. You're Actually, doing similar this. to that, we, we may not get to the rest of our lists, we may just explore this all the way. Um, having just watched, for a, an interview I was doing, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, there's a, a point where a woman's sleeping in bed and somebody comes in with a gun to kill her, and I... I couldn't focus on the murder. I was so focused on the fact that she's wearing like long, thick, fake eyelashes and perfect uh, eyeshadow and lipstick and rouge. And it's like, you got made up in order to lie, to, to go to bed. Why? <laughs> Who does that? Nobody does that. Nobody yeah. in this world puts on false no. eyelashes to go to bed. No. I mean, I do, but. Well, of course you do, but. <laughs> I just never take them off. <laughs> so, so do you, in fact, have a, a list of uh, sex tropes that well, you Well, it's really just those couple, um, but you named the other one waking up and kissing. I hate that one, too. <laughs> um, yeah, those are, the, they just really bother, movie sex scenes in general, like all of those things, usually related to women, just really bother me in that particular I, You way. know, there, there are plenty of, there are plenty of men's sex tropes that just that don't work for me either. And it uh, really, the, the getting up with underwear on is the one that always <laughs> makes me laugh most. Yeah. Scott, what do you have for us? What do you hate? I, I have a lot, but uh, I, this just happened in Spy this week, and we, we, we enjoy the movie Spy, but I hate computer enhancements of video and sur- or surveillance images. I mean, you know, that the, the, the great Antonioni movie, Blow Up, is all about how this got photographer takes his shot all these pictures in a park and then he thinks thinks that he's witnessed a murder inadvertently so he blows up the picture and the more he blows it up 
the less uh, revealing it is of the actual truth. But in, in other movies, the opposite is true. You get a blurry image, which is somehow magically able to be, you know, enhanced. It's like, what are, what are, the, what's the, what are the, some of the words they use, Keith, for these? Oh, I'm just uh, enhance. I, I think enhance. Just is enhance. Main one. Yeah. Yeah. Zoom in. Enhance. Zoom in. Enhance. Zoom in enhance. And, like, it's like, and it comes to this like perfectly, you know, crystal clear image. I mean, this that happens in Spy. It's like wow, you get this tiny piece of paper with a phone number on it. You know, oh, technology these days, and they, and you got to assume they had they have spy technology, and that's going to be more advanced than the type of technology you and I have. I don't know. To. It's usually some like g- ganked. Uh, surveillance feed forget it I I, you know what what does tend to work for me is when that gets lampshaded which i think i feel like that's happening more and more often there's a 1998 movie called the last broadcast uh which just uh, nothing else about it sticks with me except a moment where somebody like leans over a uh a bank a, a video bank that a woman's operating and I, I think he's got like a crumpled vhs tape or something that he found and he's like there can you zoom in on that and enhance it and she, there's like this incredulous pause. And then she goes, no. <laughs> and uh, my husband and I do that to each other all the time. Now, can you, can you do this ridiculous request? No, because it's just, it's acknowledging the ridiculousness of that particular trope. I have two other quick ones. Should I sure, share them? Go ahead. Okay. Another one is when someone says, I'm not going to do that. In a million years, I'll never do that. And then you get the cut to the thing being done. That is literally the worst thing yeah, ever. You, you know what that, that uh, TV Tropes calls that? What's that? The Gilligan cut. Because it happens so often in Gilligan's Island. But I'm sure the first time it was on Gilligan's Island, it was hilarious. <laughs> I don't, I'm not even sure it was funny the first time. But no, I'm right Forget there with it. you. It almost never works. I think I saw it recently when it, something recently where that actually worked. I, don't, I just don't remember. Uh, and then the other thing, and this is very small, is I don't like when whip pans are accompanied by a whooshing sound. <laughs> So how do you how do you feel about trailers with a record scratch in them to indicate that something yeah, surprising yeah, has it's happened? That's all. It's, all I, that's, it's bad enough in a trailer, but but sometimes that's actually in a movie, much worse. Okay, Keith, what do you have? What do um, you hate? I, at some point, we should probably acknowledge the 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 great source for all these, which is Roger Ebert's little movie glossary, which is sort of the the first and best, I think, collection of, of uh, cliches. But uh, uh, I don't think this was in there though, and 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 I'll admit that it works once in a while. But um, horror movies or suspense movies in which a body it cannot be killed. Uh, like that, that, and I, I see this less now. Uh, but like, one, there's a period which the sort of like stalker movies and slasher movies, uh, a, a the killer would obviously be killed. The body would be would be destroyed to the point where nothing could ever walk or live, and then it just gets up and starts walking. Or Michael Myers should, gets shot in the face at point blank range, that kind of thing. Yeah, that kind of thing. But also like in Fatal Attraction. I mean, I mean, the, oh, the yeah. shot ending in a Fatal Attraction where where Glenn Close's body takes more abuse than any human body ever could, and then she's just up stabbing or whatever it's going on there at the end of uh, fatal attraction uh, yeah it works in my i think it works for michael myers because there's some somewhat of an uncanny element to him and it was sort of he was sort of one of the first uh you know examples of this but i it never works for me otherwise yeah i i mean i feel like jason and the friday the 13th movies they went almost instantaneously to a place of this is not a, a person it's a supernatural force in a body and but those those two chains it, it seems like the halloween movies and the friday the 13th movies just kind of set this 
screwed the scene for decades of <laughs> horror films featuring people that the people in the scream movies like they are they are very openly normal human beings but they take a ridiculous amount of damage and keep on ticking you know what i saw recently that that really took me out of was tomorrowland of all things mm. so there's the scene where the kid straps on the 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 jet pack and it slams him into the ground and like drags him along the ground for hundreds of feet. And I was like, oh, oh, the kid, we're going to see a kid fatality here in Tomorrowland. Oh, no, he, he bounces up and he's fine. And it's like, if your movie is openly got Looney Tunes physics, that's no big deal. But, you know, if you watch somebody go through something that would literally like tear the limbs off an actual child and he just kind of rolls and gets up suddenly that movie doesn't really mean anything anymore in terms of like real human emotion humans are resilient though guys <laughs> humans are resilient but you know skin is easily damaged especially by being slammed into the ground at 150 miles an hour off the top of my head i like my my least favorite trope that hasn't already been mentioned like the gilligan cut is actually one of my one of my least favorite things ever but uh the the disney death obviously i hate so much i wrote a whole piece about it <laughs> and i've gotten to the point where if i'm watching a, a family film or an animated film of any kind and a character appears to die i my eyes roll up in my head so far i can't even watch the rest of my mo- of the movie um and it's given me huge respect for a film that that goes in that direction and doesn't take it back so that's like that's one of my least favorite another one that really gets in my way these days is uh stupid stoned man child is is funny and fun and woman in his life is a nagging shrew representing grown-upness this is my big problem with judd apatow movies is just the the gender breakdown of you know men are from mars where we party all the time and women are from cold hard cynical grown-up bitch land I, that's something I'm just never going to have any fun with. And <laughs> Keith and Scott are both averting their eyes, and Rachel's nodding. I think things have changed for him a little bit. I, for I mean, for Apatow, but we see that. Like, we see hang, a lot. I mean, the hangover, hangover series. The word, the hangover yeah, but we seem to have gotten over peak man-child. Like, for a while, that literally did seem to be the only thing happening in comedy around the sure. success of Apatow. And we seem to be moving in a different direction where there's... I just, if nothing else, I'd like, I have room for that kind of, of film in the world. I just got very tired of it when it seemed like that was the only thing going on in comedy. Rachel, you said you had more on your list? I do. I have one more. Um, I hate when um, guys go to the bar alone and talk to the bartender. <laughs> really? It's like such a thing. I don't know. It's just seems, it's always like, oh, they're just like escape. I think it happened. The most recent one I can think of is an American sniper, which I know was based on a true story, but it's in so many movies where a man just sort of like wanders to the bar alone to escape from whatever, you know, woman troubles or whatever's going on in his life. And he just sort of like bonds with the bartender. I don't like that. Oh, I find that fascinating. That's no. like, that's an actual thing that people do. I know, but it's always a guy. It's never a woman in the movie. Like, I can't think of a scene where, with a woman doing that, if you can. Well, I mean, I, off the top of my head, I think any scene with a woman at the bar alone means she's looking to get picked up. <laughs> Whereas a, a scene with a man at the bar alone means he's drowning his troubles. Like, that's, right. that's sort of that's, the code That's what it. I mean, yeah. So I can see what you mean there, but, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've gone to bars alone and talked to the bartender. The, the bartender always has the best stories. But you were trying to get picked up. Well, of course I was trying to get picked <laughs> up. I mean, you know, why else would I be in a bar by myself? Right. Also, I was always wearing a slinky red dress right. and uh, looked and completely out of place. Well, yeah, because like, yeah, I just you were going up, to bed. Of course. <laughs> All right. So I, I've got a, a transition point for you. I do not like underdog sports team movies. 
like the 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 big the, the kids who came from behind and couldn't possibly win but at the last second they pull it off like I I liked that film a lot more when I was younger and now I've just seen it so many times I'm sick of it which means I love movies that play with that trope and I don't want to spoil any of the the movies that undermine it by having the underdogs not win but there were a couple of them just in the last couple of years two off the top of my head I can think of that are both dance movies that pull out a sort of like a pride and uh like awareness of a situation by having the dancers not win first place in the big competition, but have them like find success in like a lower place in the competition. And both of those movies I ended up with a huge respect for because like not to say, oh, well, they acknowledge reality because not every movie has to be about reality, but they do something creative with the trope essentially. So I, I love movies that play with the underdog trope and sometimes let the underdogs lose and find something interesting in that. What's uh, what's on your love list, Rachel? Um, I really like the very cheesy part of me enjoys when very dramatic things happen in a rainstorm. <laughs> <laughs> I just really enjoy that. I never get tired of it. Hmm. I can see that. Like, uh, like the first thing that 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 conjures up is Spider Man kissing upside down in the yep. rain. Like, what's what's your go to? Well, two of them I'm thinking of right now. One from the Notebook, which just <laughs> you know unparalleled, and then um, the one from unparalleled. Which one handled? And then the one from um, the, oh, A Little Princess. Oh, I haven't seen where it. Where she greets her dad in the rain. Oh my god, I could cry just talking about. It. <laughs> So good, so good. My, my mind immediately goes to to Annie McDowell in Four Weeks at a Funeral, saying, yeah. "Is it raining? I hardly noticed." <laughs> that too, yeah. Uh, Scott, what's on your love list? Um, I I like to have sort of the rug pulled out from under me. I like it when a scene plays out in a completely straightforward way. Uh, then a cut re- reveals that the scene was just a fantasy. Uh, uh, mm. Scorsese does this a couple of different times. Um, in uh, the King of Comedy, uh, he does it a lot in the King of Comedy. He does it in the Age of Innocence as well, and, uh, and and in both cases, it's kind of about characters who are projecting, you know, d- their desires or projecting this this, scenario, this uh, dream scenario. And then when you you get to this point and you get that to that cut, it just it kind of your heart sort of sinks. And uh, I like it. It's I think it's a it, you know if if you if you use it properly, it can be emotionally very affecting. Oh, it's so hard to use that properly though. I'm I'm thinking of the Wicker Man and the the umpty jillion times that film goes to the bad thing is happening. No, wait, it was all a dream. Which yeah, yeah. I like. Where do you put the dividing point between? Oh, wait, it was all a dream, and ooh, but it was all a fantasy. Is it is it just the characters awake makes the difference? I, I think it just has to be something. I just kind of have to like it when it happens, or not like it when. It <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do think that that, that technique, if it's used uh, well, is uh, can really um, you know bring, get to the core of what the film is about. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in, in both the King of Comedy and the Age of Innocence, uh, it's a you know the, the main characters there have this very powerful desire to to be at a certain place and to do something and and, uh, and uh, to get them to that place and then to kind of pull the rug out from under them. I think is it just works for me every time. I mean, I am a big fan of the like the expectations versus reality kind of thing, um, both in something like 500 Days of Summer, where you actually have both of them on screen at the same time, and in any heist movie where you see how the heist is supposed to play out perfectly, uh, and then you cut back yeah. and find out that that was just the plan, and then you get to see how it actually plays out. I, I love that. 
All right, what else is on people's lists? Uh, training montage. Uh, you know, it's a good movie, bad movie, uh, whatever. I'll take a training montage set to a, set to a rousing song. Uh, I I love it. If if it's if it's a you know in, in effectively you know it's effectively that's a great way to build uh, towards the next part of the film. And if it's in a bad movie, I, I still kind of love it anyway. Uh, you know, um, so yeah. Man, it's, I am it's right there along, with you. Right. I mean, even a, you know, it's either really rousing or at least you're kind of getting moving right. ahead. <laughs> yes. And exactly. usually with a lot of energy. No. I'm right there with you. I, that's one of the, the, the few tropes that I'm really conscious of. I should probably be over by now, and I'm, I'm never, never going to not enjoy a training montage. <laughs> Speaking of training montages and moving things forward, we're running long. Uh, let's do a, like, a quick blitz round. What's all, what else is on your list? Well, I actually had Zooming In and Hitting Enhance as one of my favorites. <laughs> no, you did not. Oh, no. I just think it's oh like, God, always funny. Just... <laughs> I love it, perhaps ironically. And um, also, I really like when things happen in elevators. <laughs> just anything yeah all right i'm gonna hum love is loving an elevator for the rest of this uh this podcast scott what's on your blitz list I, i'm just trying to get over the elevator thing because again again my mind goes to that movie devil did you see that film devil <laughs> that an entire stuff? movie made for you i know and i actually oh. hate elevators in real life like yeah. i won't go in them so i don't know i have to unpack that myself <laughs> I think you do. I'm just trying to think about cool elevator stuff. Yeah. Um, you like it when they they kind of go through the top of the elevator, like the elevator yeah, stops yeah, and then yeah, they yeah. go up through. That's pretty For good. Sure. So, so wait, uh, where's where's Charlie? Charlie in the Chocolate Factory on your love list? <laughs> pretty high. Okay. Yeah, goes right through the roof. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, I, montage, I, move it along. A couple of things. Um, I like th- I like it when you can do things in a single take. Uh, oh, yeah. doesn't has to, it doesn't necessarily have to be showy, but if you can capture all of the action in a single master shot and make it dynamic, uh, I think it can be more effective than uh, doing it through a lot of editing. Um, uh, and it can be done a lot of ways. It can be done in, in really static takes, or you can move the camera around. Uh, I, I just like it. I like I, I like that ambition to try to capture everything in one shot without necess- that shot necessarily call- causing calling attention to itself. Uh, the one good scene in me and Earl and the Dying Girl that does this <laughs> pretty well. Um, the other thing I like to see is I like it when uh, guns are tossed away when the shooters are out of ammo. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, uh, like I just that. I just like it. They run out of ammo and they just the gun goes like the whole thing for they just they can't they're not even to use it as like a blunt instrument. <laughs> To strike somebody with, or 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 keep it around in the hopes that more ammo will will come to them at some point. They just throw the thing away. Well, you know that every gun has a kind of ammo that's made just for that single gun, and once you've used up that ammo, that gun is, is completely true. useless. That's true. But maybe later, save it, save it for a rainy day. What about what about hucking it at Superman? Like when you've just shot yeah. him six times, I love the that bullet too. bounces that's off even his better. chest. That's even better. Huck it at somebody. <laughs> and then and then Superman ducks, even though the bullets bounced off his chest. He ducks when they throw the gun at him. Yep. Every single time. Yeah, I like it. Uh, hey, they're playing our song on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's this a good thing. It's always good. No, You're a fan I, of that? Yeah, I'm always a fan of that. Yeah. Okay. Tur- turn it up. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's the, the, that's. I thought you were thinking in, like in terms of you know. Oh, that's our song, honey. But oh you... no, 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 no. It's, it's someone records a song and then. Uh, yeah. Oh my God, they're playing it on the radio, especially if, if they don't expect it to happen. Oh, that thing you do is that's the that yeah, thing you do. Selena. Uh, oh yeah, Great Balls of Fire <laughs> has has a really uh, really good. Uh, they're playing our song on the radio. Uh, yeah. Does it get bonus points from you if it's a montage where you see them recording it and then you see them in the car and like the the song has gone low? 
slow and they're like that's that's us on the radio and they turn it back up and that's the transition to playing the rest of the song Tasha, all the way through. you know that works for me. <laughs> <laughs> you're asking a question you know the answer to <laughs> it's two of your favorite things um i'm just going to mention a couple of them really quickly a uh, story within a story like i'm i'm not fond of frame stories because usually by the time you get to the end of the film you've forgotten the opening frame story mm-hmm. but the story within a story thing um i often like a lot storytelling qua storytelling we have somebody telling a story in a film uh and the medium becomes part of the story itself like i i love that um breaking the fourth wall very very often works Mm. for me the the mind bleep movie uh where the rug is pulled out from under you where it goes in a direction you were absolutely not expecting um i'm thinking of movies like the nines or stranger than fiction uh that just go completely off the wall with it um (laughs) and finally i will always be a sucker for the frightened person who does something brave anyway Every single time that gets me, like just right in the feels. Oh, oh, and Genevieve's insisting on jumping breaking in. The fourth wall. <laughs> I am. I'm totally breaking the fourth wall. Oh my wall. god, what a mind bleep! I can't believe Noah mentioned walking away from an explosion without looking back. <laughs> the coolest move in all of cinema. It always works. You know what? It's way cooler than jumping into the air and flying forward because of the explosion in slow motion. Like if there was if there was a an equation, it would just be walking away from an explosion without looking back is greater than <laughs> jumping into the air to, yeah, I, to escape the explosion. She's right about, about walking away from the explosion without looking back is super cool. But running from an explosion, trying I, I think that's 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 the negative trope. So I think you got to go. That's positive. Oh, outrunning an explosion? Outrunning, oh, yeah. yeah. That's, that's Terrible. A, yeah. Terrible. <laughs> okay, well, I've planted a bomb under this table, and everybody has five seconds to decide whether they're running from the room, walking from the room in slow motion, or throwing themselves into the air to, to keep from getting exploded. Uh, the timer goes off now, and in the meantime, we're out of time. All right, run, walk, do whatever you want. Goodbye, Mo. <laughs> Jurassic World is hitting theaters, and we haven't even brought it up in this podcast. In spite of its hated trope of stupid evil scientists playing God, and its beloved trope of a known comic actor playing a grim badass. But I figured we'd at least acknowledge Jurassic World in our game of the week, which I'm calling I'm Dinosaurie, because there are so many terrible, terrible movies in these questions. Apparently before Jurassic Park came along, there were some really terrible movies about dinosaurs out there. No Scott Tobias rule, so no penalty for a wrong answer, but we're doing this round-robin elimination style. So first person to get a crack at the question gets three points if they get it right, second person gets two, third person gets one. Here to get eaten by clever girl raptors are... <laughs> Genevieve Kosky. Rachel Handler. And... Scott Tobias. All right, Genevieve, we're starting with you. Ooh, okay. I don't promise that all of these movie, all of these questions are about terrible movies. A couple of them are about decent ones. But man, there are more bad dino movies out there than good ones. All right. Before 2009's Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, the third film to feature John Leguizamo as the voice of a prehistoric sloth, what was the last film he was in that also featured the song Walk the Dinosaur and had dinosaurs as a major plot point? Was it A, Super Mario Brothers, B, Vanishing on 7th Street, C, Titan AE, D, Rage, or E, King of the Jungle? Hmm. I just recently slept through half of Super Mario Brothers <laughs> while my roommates were watching it. So I'm going to guess that. Oh, what a recommendation for that film. You are correct. Uh, oh. Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> I, I, I had like a vague recollection of Walk the Dinosaur, like, <laughs> it, you know, in the dream I was having. <laughs> Everybody, in fact, should walk the dinosaur. All right, Rachel, you get the follow-up question. The bulk of Super Mario Brothers takes place in what fictional city where the residents evolved from dinosaurs? Is it A, Dinoville, 
B. Dinohattan, C. Dinotropolis, D. Dinova Scotia, or E. Dinowood? Oh, God. <laughs> um, Let me know if you want those again. Yeah, can you read them again? Dinoville, Dinohattan, Dinotropolis, Dinova Scotia, or Dinowood? I'm going to go with B. B. Dinohattan is correct. We've wow. got three for three here. Oh, man. All right, Scott. I would have gotten both of those wrong. <laughs> well, and I saw and I saw Super Mario Brothers in a theater. Then it's lucky this the one secret is, is to sleep through it. <laughs> it's, or it, never have seen it. Yeah. It incepted them. It has infiltrated their dreams. Oh yeah, this is this is a fun one. You might even know this. In 1993, the year of Jurassic Park, Roger Corman exercised his usual savvy awareness of the marketplace by making a cheapy film called Carnosaur, also about genetically bioengineered velociraptors and a Tyrannosaurus Rex running amok, and starring Diane Ladd, mother of Jurassic Park star Laura Dern. What was the basic plot of Carnosaur? A. Diane Ladd's character wants to breed dinosaurs as meat to solve the world hunger crisis. B, Diane Ladd's character wants women to give birth to dinosaurs, which will bond to the women and eat all of the men, ushering in a sexism-free utopia. <laughs> C, Diane Ladd's character wants to give birth to a dinosaur herself to prove her radical theory of regressive evolution and laugh at the fools who mocked her. D, Diane Ladd's character wants to spread a virus that will make women give birth to dinosaurs and die in the process, wiping out the human race. Or E, Diane Ladd plays a dinosaur. I'm gonna eliminate E. Um, <laughs> uh, I just I'm gonna I did not see Carnosaur, but I'm gonna guess B on that one. B. She wants to uh, wants women to give birth to dinosaurs, which will eat all of the men. That is not correct. Mm. Uh, Genevieve, this passes to you. Um, a. If she wants to breed dinosaurs as meat. That is also incorrect. Rachel, over to you. Uh, what is left is she wants to give birth to a dinosaur to prove her theory of regressive evolution, or she wants to spread a virus that will wipe out the human race by making women have dinosaur babies, or she plays a dinosaur. C? <laughs> That's the regressive evolution one. No, no, what? she actually does want to spread a virus that will make women have dinosaurs for babies and explode in the process and die. And she what? does, in fact, have a, a explody dinosaur baby herself. Well, that and does die. make the most sense. So. Yeah, for sure. Really? I was. I thought like the breeding dinosaurs for meat thing. Like, okay, I get it. That you know? sounds very like <laughs> rational. Like, yeah, yeah, that's just it. That. This, Which, this, it's a Roger Corman this production, so that was my mistake. <laughs> I, I I have not seen the, the Carnosaur sequels, but they seem to have much less bat poop crazy <laughs> plots, and it's actually a little disappointing. Well, and also car the the the. the, the Carnosaur kind of gives you that. Yeah. yeah. Carnivore eating. Good job. Good job Tasha. All right, Genevieve, back to you. 1994 saw the release of a movie in which the Fast and the Furious star Paul Walker played a high school student who is murdered and then has his brain transplanted in the body into the body of an animatronic dinosaur. No, it didn't. <laughs> it really did, though. What was the title of this ridiculous piece of nonsense? A. Tammy and the T Rex. B. Dora and the Dinosaur. C, my boyfriend is a dinosaur. D, freaking weekend. And E, teen ranosaur. Oh my God. This is a real movie. F, you made them all up. Um, <laughs> my boyfriend's a dinosaur? That is not correct. Uh, Rachel, you have Tammy and the T Rex, Dora and the Dinosaur, freaking weekend, teen ranosaur. Freaking weekend. That is also not correct. Scott Tobias. What was the first one again? Have you heard of this monstrosity? Tammy and the T-Rex. 
You are correct. Tammy and the T-Rex. Scott Put gets me on the board. Scott is on the board with a single point, which will still only get him the steak knives. No, I get fired with a single point. Steak knives is two, right? We've got enough steak knives to go around. Okay. We're, we, <laughs> Thank goodness. We're, we're, we're fine on steak <coughs> knives. Steak knives aren't that expensive. Uh, this one's for Rachel, right? Yeah. All right, Rachel. <laughs> In 1995, the jolly little movie Theodore Rex, a studio film that was so bad it wound up as the most expensive straight-to-DVD movie of its era, was a mismatched buddy cop movie pairing a guy in a dinosaur suit with what actor as a partner? A, Whoopi Goldberg. B, Jim Belushi. C, Emilio Estevez. D, Bobcat Goldthwait. E, Sean Young. A? A, Whoopi Goldberg. And Scott and I were bouncing out of our chairs. In the room knew that, too. And it sounded like you didn't know it, but you went with it anyway. I was pretty sure. I haven't seen it. And I just remember It's like one of the best VHS covers of all time. (laughs) Back to back, arms crossed, or the guy in a dinosaur suit. Oh, that dinosaur looks so, so very, very bad. All right. Scott, back to you. The 2000 Disney family movie Dinosaur, about a CGI baby dinosaur raised by CGI lemurs and on a quest for a safe haven, was originally conceived as a much more violent stop-motion film, with no dialogue, ending with a dinosaur extinction event, and presumably the death of all the characters. Who pitched this Disney movie and was set to actually direct it? A. Quentin Tarantino (laughs) B. Nicholas Winding Refn C. Catherine Bigelow D. Paul Verhoeven E. John McTiernan Oh, God. Um, okay, hit me again with the options. Tarantino? No. Reffin? No. Bigelow? Mm, no. <laughs> Verhoeven? I'm going to go with uh, McTiernan. McTiernan, you are not correct. Wow. All right. Genevieve. Verhoeven. Uh, did you know about this film project? No, but it just made that the was, most sense. Yeah, that was my other, that w- would have been my uh, <laughs> You just listened choice. to the elimination. Yeah. All right, you get two points for that. And now I really want to see the no dialogue, Paul Verhoeven, all of your beloved dinosaur Disney characters die movies. I mean, who wouldn't want to see that? That's a good pitch. All right. Back to Genevieve. Oh, oh, this is our audio clip one. This is exciting. All right, Genevieve, you have drawn the one audio clip uh, in this uh, in this entire game. So are you ready? You ready to hear this? As I'll ever be. All right, here we go. Well, come on, what are we waiting for? Let's go, let's get packed. We can camp on the spot. We'll have it launched in a couple of days. Now! <laughs> what do you mean, now? No. But, Mastin, you told me. You swore to all of us that we were not going to harm the dinosaur. We were only supposed to take film and study it. You Ding dong! <laughs> I love that clip so much. All right. That is a big game hunter and oil tycoon named, I kid you not, Mastin Thrust, indicating <laughs> that he wants to stay in the hidden realm under the polar ice cap and kill a Tyrannosaurus Rex. What is the name of this delightful 1977 U.S.-Japanese co-production? Oof. Is it A, The Dinosaur Killer, B, The Last Dinosaur, C, Prehistoric Prey, D, A World Before Time, or E, You Ding Dong? <laughs> <laughs> oh god the last dinosaur you are correct Woo! you are correct for three points and this is a high scoring game this is looking like basketball not hockey here uh we've got <laughs> rachel with six uh genevieve with eight and uh scott's on the board that's what we're gonna say about that one you know why you know why because i'm a clever girl <laughs> clever girl <laughs> all right rachel over to you 
Okay. <laughs> you ding dong. I'm just going to call everybody ding dongs for the rest of my life. I love that clip. Uh, which of the following is not a real movie about explorers who wind up in a mysterious hidden part of the world where dinosaurs still exist? Is it A, Land of the Lost, B, Lost Continent, C, The Lost World, D, Legend of the Lost, or E, The Lost Valley? Legend of the Lost. You are correct. Wow, this nice. is... This is a this is a, an exciting game. Um, Legend of Lost, just incidentally, is a 1957 John Wayne, Sophia Loren looking for treasure movie. Not a lot of dinosaurs but in dinosaurs. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, conceptually, they're dinosaurs, right. but like on the screen, they're they're played by people for the metaphorical. Okay, also, okay. John Wayne had surprisingly tiny arms. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just picturing him desperately trying to draw his six guns with his tiny little dino arms. Oh, podcast listeners, if only you could see Genevieve doing T-Rex arms. Tiny, tiny T-Rex <laughs> All right, Scott. Yes. Not counting TV movies or the Jurassic Park sequel, there have actually been four feature films called The Lost World. The first, from 1925, is widely remembered for what milestone? A, first location shooting outside America. B, first use of real animals disguised to portray dinosaurs. C, first use of stop motion in a feature film. D, first film shown to passengers on a plane. E, A and B. F, C oh, yeah. and D, or G, all of the above. Holy crap. <laughs> this first, is like the hardest possible question. First location shooting out of sight America. Real animals with dinosaur horns. Stop motion in a feature film. Shown to fast passengers on a plane or some salad combo thereof. Well... Oh my gosh. Is there a combination that involves stop motion and being on a plane? Yes, that would be C and D. Yeah, let's do that. That is correct. Woo! You How are right. You get, get the full that? three points on that just one. Just three. Yes, it's just three. It's three I'm like way, I'm way behind. I need more than that. <laughs> That is not how games work, Scott. Okay. You are a fan of the sports ball. You know when they call timeouts, they, that was they don't get to say, though. we need more touchdowns. Can we have more points? So we have as many points as the other okay. team has. Yeah. Still, uh, you're right. Complicated question. Uh, extra answers. And you got it right. So good for you. You get glory. Glory yeah, is good yeah. enough, right? And, and uh, yeah, and the people on the flight back had to see city slickers for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Genevieve. 1975's The Land That Time Forgot, based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs book, featured a lost German U-boat that finds an island of dinosaurs. It was followed two years later by what sequel? A, The People That Time Forgot. B, The Cave That Time Forgot. C, The World That Time Forgot. D, The War That Time Forgot. E, The Lost German U-boat That Time Forgot. The World? You are not correct, oh, Rachel. Daddy. You're right so far. Oh, oh, no, I thought you said the. B. <laughs> no, that would, the cave that time forgot is not correct. Scott, people that time forgot, war that time forgot, lost German U-boat that time forgot. People. Uh, you are correct. The yes. people that time forgot is an actual film. Yes, Joe Mentum. <laughs> All right, so now we have Rachel with nine, Scott with five, and uh, Genevieve with eight. So Joe Mentum, uh, you know, it, it's still anybody's game because you can pick these up on the rebound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you would get this one, Rachel. Uh, you might be the right age for this. In the deeply bizarre 1993 Spielberg-produced animated film, We're Back, A Dinosaur's Story, a well-meaning time travel named Captain New Eyes makes four dinosaurs intelligent and brings them to the modern day, where his evil twin brother, Professor Screw Eyes, takes control of them. I'm not making up these names. What happens to the villain at the end of the movie? A, the four dinosaurs tear him limb from limb and devour him. 
B, he's transformed into thousands of tiny dragonflies, which scatter to the four winds. C, the children use a magical wish to turn him into a lit candle and blow him out. (laughs) (laughs) D, he's swarmed by a flock of crows, which fly away, leaving nothing there. Or E, he's bitten by a dinosaur, becomes a were-dinosaur, and is summarily dumped back in the Cretaceous period. B? Mm, Thousands of tiny dragonflies. That is not correct. Scott? I'm going to go with the candlestick one. I I, I like the idea of a candlestick one, but that is not correct. Genevieve, the last one where he becomes a dinosaur. No. Dramatic irony. None of you guys got this crazy (laughs) thing right. Have none of you seen this insane movie? No, No, but I reference it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no, anytime I say I'm back, I put... A dinosaur story a after dinosaur <laughs> story. You, you, you should watch it. I mean, obviously, I just spoiled the ending for you, but it is such a completely out of nowhere, completely bat poop crazy ending. Uh, is that it the crows? It, the, the crows descend on him, and then they fly away, and there's nothing there. Hmm. Crows are crows are descended from dinosaurs. I know, so it all falls together. I like that. I like it, the, all, that it all is makes really sense. Clever. Oh, your ending was good. That's why I picked it. <laughs> they turned into a candle and blew him out. Yeah. It's a it's a pretty dark movie. Yeah. All right, that was Rachel's Scott. Over all to right, you. Here we go. Full three. Uh, in the mid 1910s, cartoonist and pioneering animator Windsor McKay famously toured with a show where he interacted with an animated dinosaur named Gertie. With cartoon, you remember Scott? You were there. Yeah, oh, so famous, <laughs> so very famous. With a cartoon clip running behind him, he would ask her to do tricks, throw her an apple, scold her, and so forth. Eventually, though, he had to limit his touring with the Gertie film. What got in his way? A. William Randolph Hearst was jealous of his success and used a contractual dispute to shut him down. B, the Daughters of the American Revolution got a court order claiming a story involving dinosaurs was disrespectful to the bi- biblical account of creation. <laughs> C, J.D. Rockefeller liked the show so much he purchased exclusive rights to Gertie and created his own shows. D, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand shut down the vaudeville theaters due to the outbreak of war. Or E, three children were hurt in a stampede in a theater where people were trying to come down front to pet the dinosaur. I'm going to go with E. E, that is not correct. Mm. Genevieve. Mm, war broke out. Incorrect. <sighs> Rachel, any guesses? Um, C. <laughs> <laughs> Rockefeller bought him out. No, uh, well, I'm starting to suspect Rachel is just saying random letters. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't want to say the whole thing again, but I think it's Rockefeller. Everybody else goes C. No, uh, William Randolph Hearst <sighs> uh, was, was actually annoyed that his cartoonist was having success away from the papers and uh, used a contractual sh- dispute to shut him down. Wow. Mm. I always go with the William Randolph Hearst is a jerk answer. (laughs) Never go wrong with that man is a jerk. All right, right, we've got three left. So we've got one (laughs) final circuit. Uh, Rachel at nine, Genevieve at eight, Scott at five. Genevieve. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm dinosaurian in advance. In Barney's Great Adventure, (laughs) the big purple dinosaur and various singing friends spend the whole movie chasing a magic egg, which eventually hatches into what? A, a panda-like thing named Rainbow that creates rainbows. B, a vaguely duckling-like thing named Sparkly that plays music on his beak. C, a vaguely koala-like thing named Twinkin that lets people see each other's dreams. (laughs) D, a vaguely sheep-like thing named Happy Who that makes plants burst into flowers. Or E, a baby version of Barney that leads everyone in the I Love You song. That last one's screwing me up. (laughs) Because that would make sense. But Barney oh, doesn't make sense. This movie does not make sense. <sighs> was was there like a duck that plays music on its bill? Yep. That one. Not that one. Darn Rachel. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we've, we've got Rainbow, the rainbow creating panda. Twinkin, the dream scene koala. That one, Twinkin. <laughs> 
You're correct. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did you actually see this movie? Wow. No, I just could tell. Life? I could feel it in my heart. <laughs> well, that is the place to feel Barney movies. Oh my goodness! I watched a, a part of this movie for this question, and I, I and I thought your that commitment to research and fact checking is becoming self destructive. Never Sasha. let it be said that I'm not committed to Sparkle Motion. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I thought the I thought the Teletubbies were weird. These are quality fake answers. You raised the bar on fake answers. It's almost like she's a professional writer or something. Yeah. A professional writer of no, this, fake answers. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, this is this Scott would have loved this one, but uh, it's going to Rachel instead. All right, here is an edited quote from a Vincent Canby review of a certain dinosaur movie. I'll read you the quote, then ask you to ID the movie. Though they can walk around and blink their eyes soulfully, the adult dinos look as if they were made out of cement, and the young one looks as if his skin had been stitched together from old footballs. Mostly, there's the problem of the innate unlovability of the brontosaurus, which is believed to have been of uniformly low intelligence, unlike, say, the Indian elephant. (laughs) (laughs) Which of these titles, all of which I promise you are actual dinosaur movies from the 1980s, was he talking about? A, My Science Project. B, The Missing Link. C, Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. D, The Land Before Time. Or E, Dennis the Menace, Dinosaur Hunter. (gasps) That was real. Every single one of these is a real title. I think it's E. It is not Dennis the Menace, Dinosaur Hunter. Scott Tobias, Science Project, Missing Link, Baby, Land Before Time. Wow. Um, I'm going to go... Well, first of all, I should say that that uh, we should acknowledge that the New York Times has got much stronger film critics <laughs> now than it did then. Um, but uh, I'm going to try my science project. Incorrect. Yeah. Genevieve. I'm pretty Miss sure it's Link? Land Before Time. No. But it's brontosaurus. They look like cement. It's Baby, Secret of the Lost oh. Legend. I've just been waiting for a Land Before Time <laughs> question. I was very excited. The movie featuring uh, some cement and a football. Yeah. All right, Scott, this is, uh, this is your last chance for glory here. Yeah. In 1981, United Artists made a comedy called Caveman about a bunch of hapless Neanderthals who get ejected from their tribe and learn various survival techniques on their own, including escaping a Tyrannosaurus Rex by getting it stoned. Mm-hmm. Dennis Quaid and Shelley Long had major roles in these things. Dennis Quaid and <laughs> Shelley Long had major roles in this thing. Scott just saluted when you said major roles. Major roles. <laughs> but who was the star of this movie? A, Ringo Starr. A, Ringo Starr. B, Michael Caine. It's A, Ringo Starr. C, Judd Nelson. <laughs> Ringo Starr still. D, Tony Danza. I'm going to go, go with A. <laughs> or E, Debbie Harry. I'm still sticking with A. Is that your final Totally. <laughs> Scott is correct and gets three points. And uh, that squeaks us out to a finish. That's him in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that performance. <laughs> Dear God. You did say he was the certainly, star. Certainly it wasn't his music. Double R. Which is terrible. It was. That was a little bit of a giveaway. You totally gave it away. (laughs) All right. Well, I'm Dinosauria, Scott and Genevieve. You both have eight points, uh, so you tie for second place. And as I predicted all along, you each get half a set of steak knives. Uh, But Rachel with 11 points is the true winner. She is the Indian elephant of this game. Scott and I are the brontosaurus. (laughs) (laughs) I will let the two of you fight about which one is stitched together from footballs and which one is made out of cement. (laughs) Thanks for playing, guys.
This week, we've got two clever girls going up against each other in 30 seconds to sell. Fortunately for me, neither of them is a velociraptor. Genevieve That's and Rachel, what you think. Oh, dang it. That would explain your <laughs> tiny little arms and how you keep going for that gun that you can't reach. Uh, Genevieve and Rachel, usual rules for our competitive recommendation segment. You each have 30 seconds to recommend a film or at least something vaguely film related. Genevieve, you're up. Go. Today I'm selling an idea, and that idea is that Nate Parker needs to become a big old star. He first caught, came to my attention in Eight Them Body Saints, where he played Sweetie, and then he totally crushed it in one of my favorite movies of last year, Beyond the Lights. And now he's currently filming his debut as a writer-director about Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion, which he's gone ahead and titled The Birth of a Nation because he's awesome. He's a super talented actor, but he's also really smart and politically and socially minded, and he's super handsome to boot, and I want his career to take off. So yeah, Hollywood. Cast him as like a superhero or something, so everyone falls in love with him, and he's in all the movies forever. Thanks, bye. <laughs> Three seconds to spare. Oh, and uh, and covered a lot of ground. All right, she that's did. she has recommended a super hunk. I'm a little inclined to go with the super hunks thing. Okay. Let's hear what you have, Rachel. All right, go. Speaking of Julie Taymor, which we were, <laughs> um, I wanted to re-recommend Titus, uh, which is when I said in college, I thought it was one of the most scary, disturbing films I've ever seen. Um, there's a scene with a woman standing next to a lake with branches for arms and no tongue. Uh, also, she has literally uh, Anthony Hopkins serving Jessica Lange meat pies made out of her own two sons. Uh, it's very underrated. <laughs> it's in on its own joke. It's weird as hell it's fascinating and it's really fucking scary effing scary sorry bleep <laughs> and um yeah it's really awesome and i love julie tamer bye <laughs> uh, also in three seconds under the wire even with the uh even with the verbal bobble so congratulations on uh on, a, on <laughs> using a precious second of your time for self-censoring um i've seen titus and it is uh it is really visually striking i I'm up and down on Julie Taymor, but she's she's definitely one of those people who's so idiosyncratic. I want her to keep making movies, even if they're movies I don't like, just because I know they'll be different mm-hmm. and interesting. And who knows, maybe she'll knock the next one out of the park. But when it comes to uh, a movie that I have seen and kind of like versus something that I have never seen and really want to see, e.g. Nate Parker, uh, superstar, supermodel, superhero, <laughs> super everything, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this one to Genevieve. Ooh, call me I, Nate. It's uh, we don't You're married. Of- we can just be friends. <laughs> <laughs> we don't get uh, nearly enough of the the ideas winning big at 30 seconds to sell. Woo. So I, I am sold on your idea. I would like to subscribe to your newsletter and or Nate Parker Tumblr. And now we've somehow come to the end of another Dissolve podcast without getting eaten by animatronic dinosaurs with the brain of Paul Walker. As we're all fleeing together, allow us to suggest taking refuge at iTunes, where we always appreciate your reviews and feedback. Reviews help move us up in the podcast rankings, boost us to a wider audience, and help keep the dino hordes at bay. You can also find The Dissolve on Tumblr, Twitter, and Facebook, and at thedissolve.com. If you have questions, comments, topic suggestions, or game ideas, email us at info at thedissolve.com. And feel free to give us a call at our Google number, 773-234-9730, and leave a short message with your name, your city, and your most or least favorite movie trope. We might even play it on a future podcast. The Dissolve Podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky, with assistance from Colin Griffith. Now go watch some movies, and we'll see you in two weeks.